listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Celebrated um, Veterans Day, and I uh, just want to um, know several of our men and women here in the room have served our country. I just want to take a second and say thank you for your service, thank you for your sacrifice, um, and thank you for being here today. Um, I've had the opportunity to pastor a church that was in Warner Robins right there at the Air Force Base, and some of the finest people in the world, church people in the world, are people that have been in the military. And so uh, I just want you to know of the blessing that you've been to me and the blessing that you are um, to our church. Also, uh, our Thanksgiving outreach, please, you'll hear more about that, but I just want to kind of push it uh, from my vantage point this morning. That's coming up very soon. We're going to try to feed more families than we ever have. And so as you hear information about that, there are pans up here to grab to fill with food There are people that are going to be needed to deliver meals to families and pray for them. I appreciate Mike's newsletter article this week. If you don't get that, uh, please let us know. We'd love for you to get that and the challenge that's there um, for us. It's also good to have uh, Rusty and Miranda here this morning and especially um, Louie here today. Um, uh, The instrumental in the planting of our church some 17 years ago. And so, um, Louie, so so good to see you this morning, uh, brother. I appreciate you being here. We're in uh, Daniel chapter 6. We finished up with Daniel chapter 5 last week. We've seen uh, a few twists and turns over a long period of time. We're just getting a few snapshots as we go through Daniel. From Daniel chapter 1 where Daniel was a young man probably in his uh, mid to late teens. Now we find ourselves Daniel is probably in his mid to late 80s in chapter 6. And it's interesting as we see the stand that he continues to take while he has been in exile and praying for 70 years, but in the same condition that he's been in for 70 years. It looks like God would answer the prayer, but Daniel is faithful in prayer. When we come to Daniel chapter 6, probably one of the most popular um, um, narratives in all the Bible, Daniel and the lion's den. So I want to begin reading in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Daniel has gone through these regime changes. He's gone from these different kingdoms and these different kings. And in Daniel chapter 6, there's a new king, but they all find the same thing out about Daniel. There's an excellent spirit within him. There's something very unique about him. Chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, This is a political maneuver. This is a political setting to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. In other words, they were going to work hard in their leadership position to try to curb corruption as much as they possibly could. A political position and power It doesn't seem to change no matter what century we might be living in or millennium we might be living in. 
Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. But things took a turn in verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel. They didn't have a complaint against Daniel. They had a complaint in their heart. They had a complaining spirit. There was something about Daniel that didn't sit right with them, and they wanted to try to overthrow him. So they began to look for a reason to substantiate their negative attitude toward him. They sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Verse 5. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. They were trying to get Daniel and his prayer life. That's exactly what they did. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber toward, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. Nothing changed in Daniel's life because of these men or this law that was intended to stop him and to put him in the lion's den. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king. This is what they were leading up to. This was the setup. It was, it was a ruse that they put before the king. It was a setup to try to destroy and eliminate Daniel. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. By the way, let me just say, these men, first of all, are wrong about that. Secondly, they lied to the king. Thirdly, they set up the king. Fourthly, they had an impure motive. But here we are. It looks like they're going to win, and Daniel is going to lose. Verse 16, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might 
be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions, no entertainment were brought to him and fled from him. He was really, really worried. Four things I want you to see from the text this morning that the writer points out to us as he gives us this skeleton sketch of what's going on here with Daniel and the lion dens. Number one, um, Daniel was different. We see that in verses 1 to 9. Daniel was different. We see it particularly in the first three verses. And I just want to point out that Daniel is God's protagonist. Daniel is the center of this narrative that we are reading from the Word of God. And the writer of Scripture wants us to see Daniel at the center of it. And he wants to point out the qualities of his life. He was a high official. By the way, he was an exile. He was a Jew. He was not one of the Persians or the Babylonians or anybody else that was there. He should not have been in leadership. He was a captive. He was a prisoner. He was an enemy, but he was about to be set over the whole kingdom. So he was a high official. Secondly, he was an honest politician. The king didn't want to suffer loss. And he knew that there were those who were corrupt. He knew that there were those who were in it for the sake of their own financial gain. But Daniel didn't take this position because of financial gain. Thirdly, Daniel was faithful to his God. Daniel was faithful to the king. And Daniel was faithful to the nation. That's important. Daniel was faithful to his God. He was faithful to the king. And he was faithful to this foreign nation. It was a faithfulness which blessed, which, which honored God and blessed man. And that should be our faithfulness. A faithfulness that was not just in the religious realm, but, within the, but in the secular realm. A lot of times we're like, hey, I want to be faithful to God and I want to be faithful at church. But when it comes to our life in the world, we could care less about our faithfulness there. Daniel was above reproach. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that if a man is going to be a bishop or a deacon, a pastor or a deacon. He should be above reproach. It's not about position. It's about the heart of that man, the character of that man. Daniel loved and obeyed the, the God of the law and the law of God. It wasn't just Daniel saying there is a law and I'm going to run to that law like it's a line, but he knew the God of the law. He knew why it was there, and he lined his life up according to the God of the law and the law of this God. All while he was in exile, over a period of 70 years, this man was faithful and obedient. Daniel's difference, what was Daniel's distinction? The text makes it clear. It was driven by his heart. It was driven by his spirit. It was driven by what was inside the man. There was an excellent spirit within him, and this excellent spirit flowed out of him. It was a life-giving spirit. It was a spirit that blessed people around him. Wherever he went, we see it over and over and over again. Every king, every kingdom, everybody, the executioners, the, 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 the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, they, they can't get away from the fact there's just something profoundly unique about Daniel, and the text tells us that he has an excellent spirit. I would remind you, dear church, that we are called in 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to just read a text there that should remind us of this, this reality that we should be 
uh, people of an excellent spirit. We should be people who have something in us that flows out of us in the world in which we live. Listen to this, First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Daniel was in exile. Daniel was in a foreign land. Of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this, here's our spirit, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it, is, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not know him now, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your so, so something has happened in us as exiles in this world that gives us a different interior world, a different spirit. Something different is flowing out of us because of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Makes us into new people. Gives us, we are partakers, Second Peter chapter 1, of the divine nature. Uh, he goes on to extrapolate on that and he says, Verse 9 of chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And all of that is generated not by uh, just some determinism on our part, but it is generated by the power of the Spirit of God that is within us because of the saving power of Jesus Christ through his death and his burial and his resurrection and our trust in him. So Daniel, Daniel has uh, a, an excellent spirit. He is the great protagonist in this text. He is God's protagonist that points to the ultimate protagonist, which is Jesus Christ. But wherever there's a protagonist, we understand that there is an antagonist. And so while God's protagonist is his son, Jesus Christ, but Daniel points us to him, now we see Satan's antagonist, those who are against the protagonist, those who are against these people and their soul. There is an antagonist coming at you and coming at me. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we need to stand there is an enemy that we must stand against and armor up and be in the word and be in prayer and be strengthened and be bold. So we see the antagonist, the antagonist of our soul. And I would say this this morning, if you are not being assaulted by the antagonist, you are unrelated to the protagonist. 
If Satan's not after you, you're probably not in relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are not being assaulted by the antagonist, you are not related to the protagonist. Here's what we know about Satan. He comes to steal and to kill and destroy, John 10, 10. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. He is called Abaddon and Apollyon, destruction and destroyer, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11. He wants to sift you as wheat, Luke 22, 31. He is crafty, he is cunning, he is convincing, he is scheming, he is compelling, he is comforting. And in this text, we see one faithful man. We see God's protagonist who has a life filled with an untold number of antagonists and they are unified and unrelenting. I just want to take a minute and point out the characteristics. While we point out the characteristics of this faithful man, Daniel, that is, that is, that is flowing out of him because of what is inside of him, not because of his determination to be different. But the Spirit of God has made him different. I want you to notice these antagonists. And I want you to maybe search your heart this morning and see if there might be the spirit of an antagonist within you. We see the word complaint over and over again. And the word complaint, they, their complaint was they wanted to get one over on Daniel. They, they, they complained because they, they wanted to exalt themselves at the expense of someone else's demise. They complained because they had a complaining spirit. That's the way we are. We don't complain because we have a reason to complain. We complain because we have a complaining spirit. And so we see these guys coming on the scene and they're complaining. They're finding fault. They're they're. Critical. They have a contrary spirit. We see this life-giving spirit versus this complaining, fault-finding spirit. If you have a problem with almost everything, if you're scanning everything in front of you to find a point of disagreement, that is not necessarily discernment. It's probably contempt. Okay? If you're scanning everything... And you're just constantly looking for something wrong. And that's all you can see and that's all you can hear and that's all you can say. And that you say. It's, not, it's not necessarily discernment. So I've just got discernment. It may be that you are filled with contempt and you might be an antagonist. If you're constantly seeing the fault in others... And all your cronies see the same dirt that you see. You may be a gossip and an antagonist. And if all of your friends that you hang out with are people that enjoy finding fault with others, you might be an antagonist. These men had a complaining spirit, and they were looking for a reason to justify it. They were paranoid. They were jealous. They were power-hungry. They were deceptive. They were conscienceless. They were so critical that they hired a private investigator. They checked Daniel's phone records. They checked his social media accounts. They checked his internet traffic. They checked his email. They hacked into everything that he was doing. They had cameras set up to watch every move that he made. And at the end of the day, they could not find anything wrong with Daniel. The text is clear that they found other complainers. They formed a coalition. They hatched a plan. There was this great collusion they created new laws. They established documents that, that empowered them and gave them permission to destroy Daniel. That's the antagonist. 
Jesus Christ is the ultimate protagonist. He's the main character. He's the centerpiece of human history. He's the epitome of good, of love, of holiness, of perfection. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. But Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15 tells us that there is going to come an antagonist. And this antagonist is going to wage war against the protagonist from the beginning of time. We also know that Jesus will ultimately win that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and everyone in the world will recognize that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so does Daniel ultimately in this text, and we all know that. But let me ask you this morning, are you with the protagonist or are you with the antagonist? There is the mission of God. There is the people of God. There is the call of God. There are the purposes of God. There are things... In this world that need to be done that only the church can do. Are you with are you with the protagonist? Are you with Jesus? Are you with the antagonist? That's really important. I don't know necessarily what you hope to accomplish with your life, but when it is all said and done, the only thing matters. Is that is if that if Jesus looks at you and me when we stand before God the Father and He says He's with me. First John two one we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and He says Hey, He's with me. He's not with the antagonist. How do your words, how do your thoughts, how does your energy, how do your conversations, how do your relationships impact the mission of this church that you are a partner with? I want you to think about that. There's the real danger that we run of being antagonist of the mission of God when we are are constantly looking through the binoculars of what we call discernment, but it is really a heart that is filled with contempt. And most of our attitude and results and findings as we look at our people become something that is negative because we are partnering with the antagonist and not the protagonist. I would ask you this morning what kind of spirit is in you. You could think about that for a minute. You could draw your own conclusions. Or you could just ask your kids on the way home. (laughs) Right? Because, hey, I've lied to the guy in the mirror many a time. Right? But your kids won't lie to you. What kind of spirit is in you? Do you have a spirit of excellence? Are you a complainer, a fault finder, a gossip? The most, listen to me, listen to me carefully. The most powerful thing in the world, two things I would say, and I may be wrong and there may be more, but here's what I would say. The two most powerful things in the world are beauty, are beauty, and words. Beauty and words. And, and complaining is clothed in the words that we speak. And it's violence, and it's damage, and it's harm. Are you a complainer? Are you a fault finder? Are you a gossip? Or do you focus on beauty? 
And are your words words of life? Do not let Satan hijack your thoughts, your words, your conversations, and turn you into one who cooperates with the antagonist. Are you part of a coalition of gossips and complainers? We've heard a lot about collusion in the political front lately. Are you in collusion with those who are antagonists of the mission of God? There is something appealing to the rigid spirit of antagonism. There is something appealing to the rigid spirit of antagonism. We call it conviction. And I believe in conviction. But conviction shouldn't make us enemies, and conviction shouldn't make us angry, and conviction shouldn't make us antagonists. Conviction, if it's rooted in Scripture, and it's, and it's manifested through a spirit and words that are born by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his spirit dwelling within us should really make us beautiful and winsome. The spirit of antagonism is masked with conviction, with self-righteousness. But at the end of the day, when the fire dies down and, and the embers are left and we dig through these coals, we find pride and jealousy and a critical and contemptuous spirit. Because the problem is not what is around us, but what is inside of us. And that's what's going on here. The, 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 the beauty of Daniel was what was inside of him and the, the ugliness of these antagonists was, was what was inside of them and the most important thing about you is not the boxes that you check but what's going on inside of you. Daniel was different. Secondly, Daniel was devoted. Daniel was fully aware of what was going on. He knew that the king had been deceived and that he had been set up, not unlike our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Judas, what's their pattern? Oh, man, they, they, they go and they enjoy, you know, the table, and then they go out into the Mount of Olives and, uh, or to, to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray, and then they come through this gate, and so Judas gets a crowd, and they're waiting there for Jesus as soon as he walks out, and Judas is going to betray him with a kiss. Jesus knew all along exactly what was going to happen. He, he knew that he was going to be betrayed, and Daniel knew that he was going to be betrayed. But he still prayed. He was fully aware of what was going on. Daniel's devotion was not swayed by celebration or crucifixion. He wasn't swayed by people who praised him or people who wanted to kill him. It didn't depend on things going for or against him. He was still devoted. He was unaffected by gold statues or fiery furnaces, or edicts of the king or the state. He wasn't worried about losing his job or his retirement. There was a transcending devotion that was worth living for and worth dying for. And he was not going to change it for anyone. So Daniel was fully aware, but then we see in the text that Daniel prayed. Convicted by his prayer life. <laughs> he prayed for Three times a day for 70 years. It's convicting. He had been a minority. He was a prisoner. He kept facing threats of death for 70 years. 
He kept facing antagonists for 70 years, yet he kept praying. He went in, he opened his window facing Jerusalem, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 51. If you find yourself in exile, if you find yourself captured because of your sin, and that's exactly what happened, 1 Kings chapter 8 tells them that if they repent and they turn back to God, that they should then fall on their knees in prayer and they should face the temple. They should face that great city Jerusalem. That's exactly what he did. What Daniel didn't do is Daniel didn't play the victim card. That's so culturally appropriate, and yet it is quite frankly so unchristian. He didn't try to take him to court. He didn't try to take him to court. He didn't manipulate the situation to achieve a desired outcome. He didn't hide or alter his faith in the slightest. He didn't water it down. He didn't compromise. He didn't change anything. He didn't close the windows. He didn't try to hide from them. He didn't seek comfort or change in circumstances or consequence. He just prayed. And when he prayed, he exposed the heart of his antagonist. You see, the antagonist tried to make the protagonist the antagonist. So what in the world do you mean by that? I don't know what I mean by it. I'm just... Thought it sounded good, right? No, you got, you, got the, you got the antagonist, these complainers, these fault finders looking at Daniel, who's the protagonist, and they're saying, oh, king, the problem is Daniel. They want to make him the antagonist. They wanted to make God's man that God had raised up in this situation, they wanted to make him the antagonist. Daniel is the problem. Everything was fine until Daniel came along and and then they start pointing out these differences, these cultural differences, these racial differences. He's an exile. Who cares about his spirit? He's an exile. Who cares about his heart? He's a transplant. Who cares about his heart? He's a Jew. He's not one of us. He doesn't belong here. Who cares about his God? Daniel's devotion exposed their heart. They were bloodthirsty. And they would let nothing keep them from Daniel's date with the den of lions. Briefly, as we read verses 14, 15, and 18, we see Daniel's distressed defender. That's the third thing we see in the text. Daniel's distressed defender. The king knew that he'd been set up. He knew that in a moment of weakness that he, they had appealed to his pride and his pride won. He wasn't taking into account this man Daniel that he knew that he probably knew prayed three times a day. He didn't think that anybody was crazy enough to try to unseat Daniel who had done so much for the kingdoms that he had served over a 70-year period of time. But that is exactly what they were trying to do. And as soon as the king realized that, he tries to undo it. But here's what we realize from Daniel's distressed distress defender. First of all, the king was powerless to save Daniel. The king was powerless to save Daniel. He did everything that he could to save him, but he could not overcome the corrupt colluders, the legal system of the power or the state. Secondly, not only was he powerless, but he was worried. While Daniel was seemingly peaceful and content, the one who was locked up, the one who was accused, the one who was hated, the one who was attacked, Daniel was peaceful. I wish I could be like that. (laughs) You know? Daniel was peaceful. No, I worry about everything. And thirdly, the king, at least in this moment, acknowledged that if deliverance was possible, it was totally dependent upon a more than capable 
God. Can I tell you this morning that your deliverance is not based on how good you are? Because you can be as good as you can be and you may find yourself in the lion's den. Your deliverance this morning is not found in you being an antagonist. Your deliverance and my deliverance is found in one place this morning. It's found in the God who delivers. It's found in the God who delivers. May may your God deliver you. Nobody else can deliver you, Daniel, except your God. The fourth thing we see in the text before I offer a few concluding thoughts this morning is that Daniel is doomed in the lion's den. There is no way that you can take a human being being, and throw him into a, this probably a cistern that didn't have water in it, a, a place hewn out on the ground that was maybe covered over with an opening, pretty sturdy place. It had lines in it. Why did they have lines in these places? They probably used lines for sport. They probably hunted lines, or maybe they used lines for execution. Maybe they used lines in this case um, to keep people straight or to scare people into obeying the law. Whatever the reason, Daniel was cast to certain death in the lion's den. Daniel was cast to certain death in the lion's den. If I had been Daniel, I would have probably thought, so this is where a lifetime of of faithfulness and prayer will get you. Right? What good is, hey, if things don't go my way, what good is it to be faithful to God? What good is it to be faithful to God if things don't go my way? <laughs> my son-in-law is a high school football coach. They're playing in the state, tur- the state tournament, semifinals, Friday night. And I watch the games and my heart rate just goes up, just like, just like a way over 100, you know. Um, and... Um, uh, my, my son-in-law has a dyslexia. Um, he hasn't had an easy life. And um, they're playing Charlotte Christian. Now, Charlotte Christian is funded by none other than Steph Curry. That's where he went to high school. And so rather than watching the game and letting my heart rate go up, I decided I was going to pray. And so I just prayed. I prayed through the whole game. I prayed about Sunday. I mean, how, how much can you pray about when you're praying about a football game? Uh, Lord, let them win. Let the enemy lose. You know, let them run fast. Let the enemy run slow. You know, let them make good passes. Let, the, let them get interceptions. Let the other team fumble the ball. And about, after about five minutes of that, I just started praying for y'all. And I just prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And, and I literally didn't, you know, I'd go check the clock. I'm like, man, I've been praying for a long time. And it's like, oh, first quarter's over, you know. And, and I prayed. And um, finally, Mandy said, the game's over. She said, they won. Right. Celebration on the field. And all of a sudden, after the game's over, the official throws a flag. Roughing the passer on the last play of the game. Put one more second on the clock. Charlotte Christian, with all their D1 players, lined up. Last play of the game with one second left. Quarterback goes back, throws it to the end zone. Receiver catches it, touchdown. (laughs) What good was my prayer? Right? 
thought that for a minute. God, where are you when I need you? Right? That's kind of the way we are, isn't it? That's more like what I am. Daniel wasn't that way. Seventy years of praying, and Daniel was still faithful to his God. Jesus, again, a picture of him. He was conspired and colluded against. He was arrested. He was tried. He was found guilty. He was crucified. He was placed in a tomb. The tomb was covered with a stone. It was sealed, shut by the greatest power in the world. But God had a better idea, and it's called the resurrection. The antagonist was defeated, and Jesus Christ rose to life. And he will give you life if you'll trust him. That's the good news this morning. Let me try to offer you some thoughts as I close. Number one, what do we see? We see the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over kings. He's sovereign over antagonists. He's sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over lions. He's sovereign over threat. He's sovereign over danger. And that is a God you can trust when life is not working out for you. That is a God you can trust when life is not working out for you. The beauty of the sovereignty of God is not that we're making it as a theological statement that we need to constantly parrot so that somebody knows the boundaries of our theology. We make that statement because of the enormity of God. And he is the only God that is worthy of our worship. He is the only God who saves and expects you to do nothing for it but to trust him. So we see the sovereignty of God. Secondly, we see this, that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful. Listen, listen carefully. He is faithful to put himself before us constantly, even when we forget and abandon him. And over and over again, he proves himself worthy of our complete surrender. You say, what do you mean? How do you see the faithfulness of God in all of this? Because I see God showing himself in a dream to a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. I see God showing himself in a dream to a guy named Belshazzar. I see God putting himself before um, these people here in this the, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, and I, I see him displaying himself when Daniel's thrown into the lion's den and Daniel's brought out. And these people constantly, just like Nebuchadnezzar, over and over and over again, they see God's power, they say good things about it, but it never changes their life. God then comes back, and he comes back, and he comes back. And he comes back. Let me show you my let me show you again. Let me show you who I am. I want to reveal myself to you until ultimately he sent his own son. So we could look God of very God in the eyes. We could see him walking around. We could hear him speak. We could see him heal. He would reach out and touch. And so here is this God who is so faithful to put himself before us over and over and over again, even when we forget and abandon him over and over and over again. Again, he proves himself worthy. And I want you to hear him today again. You say, man, I've blown it. I'm unfaithful. I want you to hear him again today. Say, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. 
I will give you rest. Not because you've been good, but because he's good. He's faithful. I will give you rest. He says, not only come unto me, but he says, follow me. What's the big deal about following him? Just, just looking at the ground. looking. No, he's like, I want you to be with me. I want you to hang out with me. I want to be in relationship and fellowship with you. I want you and me to relate like me and the Father relate, John 17. I want to be in relationship with you, even if we've just completely blown it. Thirdly, the purposes of God may be served well by our suffering, our being accused, our being attacked, our being killed. And I'm just not there. <laughs> I'm not okay with that. I'm not fighting against it. Not in my brain. But I'm scared to say that. Can I tell you that? I am scared to say that this morning. The purposes of God may be served well by our suffering, by our being accused, by our being attacked, by our being persecuted, by our being killed. I'm not okay with that. But I want to be. We read about Job. We read about Joseph. We read about Stephen. We read about Paul. Fourthly, we see the power of our idols. The danger of hearing, seeing, saying, agreeing with truth and life, but being fundamentally unchanged by it. Do, do you hear me? The power of our idols. The power of our idols will allow us to, to hear and to see and to say and agree with truth and life. That's what we see over and over again. Again, go back to Nebuchadnezzar. What is he doing? He's like, oh, Daniel, your God is, is the real God. Oh, Daniel, I want to put you as a high official in the kingdom. Oh, Daniel, you're amazing. We all need to bow down to your God. Daniel's God is the God. Didn't change how they lived. Why? Because of the power of our idols. Because we have other gods in God's place. You say, man, I don't know why my life isn't changing because you're bowing at the altar of idols that don't give life but bring death. The fifth thing, I've got six things. The fifth thing is this, the idea that I can get it right. I want to be like Daniel. You want to be like Daniel, you got to get it right, man. You got to get it right. How many, how many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you have tried to get it right and failed like a hundred times? I said, don't raise your hand. Yeah. Amen. How many of us have tr just tried to get it right? I want to get it right. Preacher, I'll tell you what, if you would just give me some principles for how to get it right, then I could get it right and everything would be all right. And finally, I would get it right. And I've been trying for about 50 plus years to get it right and I can't get it right and every time I think I get it right I find out that I'm not getting it right the book of Daniel is not about how to get it right 
It's just not. Some of you here would say, I'm, I'm getting it right. Being right is a powerful thing. Let me say three things about getting it right. Number one, most of us feel like failures for not getting it right. Most of us feel like failures for not getting it right. It's called shame. <laughs> right? And then when somebody gets up and says, hey, you need to get it right, and then you try for two weeks, and you'll follow all ten of the principles that I give you, and you realize at the end of the day that maybe you're doing some things right on the outside. Maybe you're driving 55 on a 55. Why in the world would anybody want to do that, by the way? <laughs> you just don't have much of a schedule, do you? <laughs> or or maybe, maybe you didn't raise your voice, or maybe, maybe you didn't drink a beer. Maybe you didn't say a cuss word. Maybe you didn't watch a movie. Right? Getting it right. Getting it right. But at the end of all of that, you realize that nothing's changed in your heart. And, 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 the, and, and the heart is what needs to change. It's not getting it right. Most of us feel like failures for not getting it right because we've been told, hey, you can get it right. If you do what I did, you can get it right. If you do what Daniel did, you can get it right. Secondly, some of us are sure that we have it right. And quite honestly, you're not honest with yourself and you're proud. The story of Daniel is about not getting it right. None of us is going to get it right. And by the way, if you can get it right, why do you need Jesus? The story of Daniel is graciously pointing us to the one who got it right. And we trust him. We trust him. And it generates this humility in our hearts. I trust the one who got it right. And I'm going to follow him. He has invited me. And I'm going to hang out with him. And I'm going to fall in love with him. And he is going to change my life. He is going to change my heart. He is going to renew my mind. But it's not by following the get it right list. It's by trusting the one who got it right. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. And when he had the right to say, I got it right, he went and said, bring the sin of all those who can't get it right and put it on me and I'll die for it. And he didn't do that so we could get it right. He did that so we would trust and love and praise and worship and enjoy him. Finally, are you different? Do you have a different spirit? Do you have an excellent spirit? Do you have a life-giving spirit even in adversity? I'm not asking you about your rightness. I'm asking you about your spirit. I'm asking you about the energy that flows out of your soul. That is, that is more tangible than your physical presence. Do you hear me? The energy that flows out of your soul is more tangible than your physical presence. That's what was happening with Daniel. I'm asking you about your heart. I'm asking you about your words. Over and over again, Daniel had this supernatural spirit. And so does every believer. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What kind of spirit do you have this morning? And I would ask you to examine your heart. I pray 
our Lord would bless us as we contemplate this narrative in Scripture about the life of this man, Daniel. Every week at South Point, we, we do um, partake in communion. We remember the Lord. And I, I just want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to I read um, and, and just uh, take, take some time to just remind us again. A lot of times I feel pressed for time, and I'm seven minutes over my 40-minute time limit. But give me about three minutes just to press into you for a second about communion this morning. Um, it's, real, it's really important. It's really important, and it's worth uh, just a minute of uh, overtime. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper. He said, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because, you come, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one does ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, we're not doing any of that, right? There's not enough here to satisfy your hunger or get you drunk, okay? It's grape juice. But he's talking about the attitude of the heart. He's talking about how these people view other people and how they relate together with one another. He says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. They were basically going through the motions that had no meaning that the symbol was intended to have. You hear me? They were just going through the motions, and the motions did not have any meaning or significance that the symbols were intended to have in the lives of those who partook in it. It's, it's a time to just like call a time out and shut everything out of your mind. And then he tells us in verse 23 what he received from the Lord. He said, For I received from the Lord that what, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So remember Jesus. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming that your hope is in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where your hope is. It's in him. It's not in you. It's not in your performance. It's not a casual thing. By the way, that does impact how we live our lives and how we relate to others. Verse 27 it gets serious. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Because if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he gives us these instructions. What, what does this mean? Here's what it means. First of all, communion is for believers. If you are not a believer, 
we love you and we're glad that you're here. I, I pray that you would come to know Jesus Christ and surrender your life to him. Do that today. Just surrender to him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. I would beg you to do that. But if you're not a believer, don't come and partake because this symbol is saying that I'm in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, you're not in right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And you're drinking unworthily and you're drinking damnation unto yourself. Secondly, Communion is not only, not, 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 not only for believers, but com communion, this text would bear out, is for the repentant. Every one of us in this room ought to be examining our hearts. Uh, by the way, uh, I've sinned this week. This is a time to recalibrate. This is a time to say, I'm going to examine my heart. This is a time to confess afresh and anew. This is a time to repent of sin. If there is unrepented sin in your heart and life, don't partake. It's making a mockery. It's saying that I'm going to hang on to my sin. Jesus paid for it, but I'm going to hang on to it. I'm not going to repent of it. When I come and partake, I'm saying that, that I am putting my faith in what Christ has done, which means that I'm not going to walk around with unrepentant sin in my life. And I would call you this morning to call out to the Lord to repent of your sin. If there's some other human being that you have sinned against or they've, that has sinned against you, go and make that right. Communion is for believers. Communion is for the repentant. Communion is for those who are in right fellowship with other believers. For those who are right with the church. So I invite you. Communion is for those who are in right relationship with God. It's a serious matter. If you are a believer, if you are repentant, if you are in right fellowship with believers and the church, if you are in right fellowship with God, then you're invited to partake. But if not, or if there's a question, or if you're wondering, or if there's something that needs to be made right, out of love for you, out of love for you, and out of obedience to God's word, I would say don't partake. And by the way, there are people who many times when things aren't right in their heart, they'll sit in their chair. There's no shame in that. I respect that. Now I would say don't leave what's unresolved unresolved. Make it right. But as you come today, I'd like for you to think about what God's word says about what we're doing. This is not a ritual. This isn't going to take in this. You're not, it's, it's not going to... Uh, cause you not to have a flat tire or cause you to get a raise at work. It's not, that's not, this, isn't, this is not some magic ritual. This is a statement that needs to come from the core of our being about who we are in Christ and about who we are in Christ.